Good morning. Great to see you this morning. Thanks, team, for, for leading us here this morning. And in Nate's absence, who needs him, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I kind of am partial to one of those ladies up there in particular. So, uh, and more so than Nate. I'll just be honest about that, all right? <laughs> well, uh, friends, if you would, please turn in your copy of Scripture to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, we're in our fourth week in a series we're calling The Beginnings uh, here at Cornerstone. This is a study in Genesis. We're going to be in 1 through 11 together throughout the summer. And uh, we're going to start picking it up here, moving a little bit more quickly, uh, starting about next week. But for now, we've been zooming in uh, on chapter Two, and I hope it's been a helpful study to you. It certainly has uh, been for me, and that's where we'll continue here this morning. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. And, and by the way, my name is Andy. If you're a guest here, I'm one of the pastors, and it's a joy uh, to be with you here together. Well, several years ago, uh, Christy and I were approached by some of our friends who had a question. They were, they were wrestling with something. See, uh, one of their cousins was getting married, and, and they were wondering uh, whether or not they were going to actually support the, the marriage, whether they were going to go to the ceremony. And it was a tough question. They, they wanted to know what we thought. See, their, their cousin, uh, who, who was a woman, was going to marry another woman. And my friends loved Jesus, and they had a high regard for Scripture. And so uh, what they believed to be God's design for marriage came into conflict with their experience with their cousin and what the, their cousin was preparing to do. And yet, they loved their cousin. They grew up together. They, they, they enjoyed community together. They played together outside. They, they shared life uh, together. And, and, and yet, they didn't condone the marriage, and so they were struggling. It was a tough situation. Now, as I reflect on that conversation, I, I'm convinced I'm not the only one that's had that type of conversation uh, uh, these days. I, I mean, it's been, become pretty commonplace. And, and as I reflect on that, I'm reminded of a sobering reality. What was once fairly cut and dried, what was once fairly straightforward in our society, has now become fuzzy for a lot of us who hold a high regard of Scripture. See, for a long time, uh, most people understood marriage to be between one man and one woman even if they didn't always abide by that commitment, right? I mean, infidelity, adultery, uh, sexual immorality has been around for a long time, okay? So, so even though somebody might have agreed to uh, God's definition of marriage, it doesn't mean they assented to it. It doesn't mean they abided by it. But, but now, society tends to define marriage with much broader strokes, doesn't it? A recent Gallup poll shows that in the last 25 years, uh, people's opinions of same-sex marriage in America has gone up from 27% in 1996 to now 70% in 2021. It's, it's significant. There's been a, a significant shift in popular thinking, hence our friend's conundrum and, and many of yours. But church, same-sex marriage isn't the only issue. Okay. I, I, many have begun to view marriage simply as unnecessary, as, as a formal process that incurs more expense and more risk than is necessary. And so for, for those in that line of thinking, cohabitation provides a much better alternative. That way, should the relationship break down, uh, uh, should, should the relationship break down, there, there's limited collateral damage. In fact, uh, one study estimates that 70%, again, there's that number, 70% of people today will live together in a cohabiting relationship, in a, in a sexual uh, relationship you know, where they share the same roof before they get married. 70%. It's at an all-time high. And, and still there's more. See, it's not just same-sex marriage. It's not just cohabitation, but things like uh, polyamory and polygamy and open marriage and a host of other practices continue to challenge what we might define as our traditional understanding of marriage. 
And so we have to ask the question. And, and again, these, these are uncomfortable topics. We've been talking about some uncomfortable things in our study in Genesis. But, but culturally, these things are presented. And so I, I think it's time that we have some of these uncomfortable conversations because we're wrestling with what is this thing called marriage supposed to look like? I mean, it's, it's tough enough to figure out how to do marriage in a traditional context. How, how do we make sense of all that's changing around us? And church, for the answer to that, we, we do what we, what we always do around here. We go to God's authoritative and inerrant word. We go to the Bible. And specifically, as we've done already, we, we go back to the beginning, to the very beginning, to, to the first marriage. And as we discover God's design for marriage, we're going to learn not only how, how we can respond to society's current redefinition of this sacred relationship, but also we can learn some things about thriving in our own marriages as well. I, I joke with somebody beforehand, I'm just going to tell you all the th- good things that Christy and I do, and that'll be enough, right? And we'll all thrive. No, no, it's, it's, a, it's a journey. It's, it's, a, it's an ongoing process. But we're going to work together from the text to discern what does it look like to observe marriage according to God's design, and what does it look like to participate in it? Now, uh, before we read, I want to remind you of Moses' purpose in writing the book of Genesis, okay? Moses has a design here, a purpose. He has an intent in mind. See, Moses was leading the people out of Egypt and through the will wilderness and into the promised land, into a land called Canaan. And in Canaan, uh, the the surrounding cultures around the Israelites that were living in Canaan in in the area had significantly digressed from the ideals of the Garden of Eden. Okay? And as the people began to observe the cultures around them, as the Israelites saw what other people did and how they thought, Moses wanted to make sure that they didn't get sucked in by these varying forms of, of pagan worship, of polytheistic, the worship of many gods, and these varied expressions of, of both cultural and sexual immorality according to God. And so to argue against these surrounding uh, cultures, Moses articulates God's original design, first for the cosmos as his temple, and then for humanity as God's image bearers, and, and then for work as God's, uh, 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 God's opportunity for humanity to worship him, and then now for marriage as God's ideal uh, prototypical relationship. And see, We like to think that that some of these issues are are modern and that we're dealing with them in isolation. But in fact, these issues have been around for a long time. We're not the only culture that's had to wrestle with these kinds of things. And so with that, we we go to God's original design for marriage. We we go to the text, okay? And so we're going to begin in verse 18. We'll work through 25, but starting in verse 18, it says this. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. (laughs) Now, this is a fascinating verse, a fascinating text here. For for the first time in the creation account, remember God had been creating and at the end of each day he says, oh, this is good. And he says, oh, that's good. And he says, oh, that's good. And oh, I really like that. That's good too. But for the first time in the entire creation narrative, God sees Adam standing there all by himself. He he must have looked rather pathetic, I guess. And he says, oh, that's not good. (laughs) That's a problem. It's not good. For man to be alone. See, isolation wasn't God's ideal for humanity. 
God never intended for Adam to stay alone. He created Adam first, so he knew that he'd be alone for a while. But this isn't the ideal. And God recognizes this. Church, I I meet people sometimes who say, you know what? I'm fine being alone. I'm an introvert. I like being alone. I I don't really like other people. And so I'm fine with my Bible and my podcasts and and my books. and, And I don't really need to be in community. So just, you know, let me be, right? I'm just wired that way. But church, if, if that's how you think, if, if that's your, 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 your process, I want you to listen to God's word here. He says it's not good, verse 18, that man should be alone. It's not good. Church, right from the beginning, God created humanity for community. God created humanity for community. Isolation wasn't God's ideal. And so then what does God do? Well, look at the second part of verse 18. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. (laughs) Now, some of us read this verse and we say, ah, there you go. There's another example of biblical misogyny, right? This patriarchal society where where all all people are doing is trying to put their thumb on women and to say to women, look, you need to stay in your place and and let the men do what they do. That's how a lot of people read that text. But But I suggest to you that if you're reading it that way, you're reading it incorrectly. That's not how it was meant to be read. See, see, the Hebrew word for helper is the word ezer. It's, it's the word ezer, okay? And in Hebrew, ezer is anything but a demeaning term. In fact, the Old Testament predominantly uses ezer to describe God's coming to the help, to the aid of his people. For instance, Exodus 18.4 says, The God of my father was my ezer. He was my helper. And he rescued me from Pharaoh's sword. There's multiple examples, church. And when God says, I'm going to make him a helper, he's recognizing that that isolation is not God's ideal. And and so Adam, he needs not only a companion, he needs not only a friend, but he also needs an advocate. (laughs) He needs somebody to, to step in and to shore up his inadequacies. And so he creates this wonderful thing called woman, (laughs) this person, not, not to be his doormat. Not to be a slave, but, but like God coming to the aid of his people to be his warrior helper. Irreplaceable and invaluable. Now, the text gets even more specific here. See, not only is she Adam's helper, but the text says that she's a helper fit for him. Okay, Fit for him. The NIV uses the term suitable here. And I like that. She's a suitable helper. She's equal in value, and she's adequate for the task. She's uniquely fit to join the man in fulfilling God's Edenic mandate of filling the earth and multiplying, Genesis 1.28, to, to subdue the earth and to have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. God says, look, there's Adam. He's by himself. He's alone. That's not good. I better supply a helper for him. And so he does. And contrary to other, uh, other ancient Near Eastern cultures, which often viewed women as second classes at best, here God says, no, no, no. <laughs> this woman, she's fit. She's suitable. She's indispensable. She's capable of, of coming alongside Adam to do that which I've asked of Adam. <laughs> the, the literal translation, and, and I love this, is that she's designed according to his opposite. Anybody think that they're the opposite of their spouse sometimes? Christy and I are so different. It's incredible. It shows up every day. Every day. But praise God. Out of of Christy's opposite, she's a perfect fit for the task. 
My stars, if, if she were just like me, our lives would be a mess. I promise you that. And she can agree. I know she can. Yeah. Church, Eve, like Adam, is created in God's image. She's exactly the same equally before God as, as one who has value, who has worth. But like God in Trinity, she has her own distinct personality, her own distinct role. She's the same, yet different. I think Christy and I get these bits of unity in the midst of our differences sometimes. Praise God for that. Eve was a perfect fit. Now, specifically in what areas? How does this work uh, together? Well, in many ancient Near Eastern cultures, a woman's import was limited to her fertility. That's just the way a lot of people viewed women in, the, in antiquity, in the ancient Near East. But church, that's not how God views women, okay? And it's just uh, important because of their ability to produce children. Look at verses 19 and 20. I think this is great. It says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with, fret, with flesh. Church, in the context of Adam's work, work, there was no helper found for him that was suitable. Okay? Adam's busy doing what God asked him to do. He's, he's exercising dominion and authority over creation by naming the animals. That's an indicative of authority over someone if you can name them. But as he goes through the process, two things begin to happen. <laughs> First, he starts looking at all these animals and seeing who they are and, and seeing, seeing how they're constituted. And he realizes all of these animals, they have pairs. <laughs> But here I am standing all by myself. There's, there's no one like me to share in the joy of doing what God has designed me to do. And then on top of that, I think Adam's sitting there looking and, and saying, you know, this is a big job. This is tough. And see, part of God's design for creating woman was to assist Adam in the work that God had called them together to fulfill. See, Genesis 1.28 comes just after Genesis 1.26 and 27 when God created them male and female. And, and, and so, so here Eve is provided by God for the work that God called them together to fulfill and, and not just the work of procreation. <laughs> Also the work of exercising dominion. God brought Adam and Eve together for, for the work. And so I agree with K.A. Matthews who says that the fact that the man is expressing his rule over the animal world in the search for an appropriate helper caused him to realize his inadequacy to the task if he continues in the impotent condition of alone. In this way, God's preparing the man to value his mate. <laughs> Any of you dads that have ever been home alone with small kids after your wife leaves, you know what this is, this is talking about, right? We need our spouse. We need our spouse. Church, when, when I think about the partnership that God has created between Christy and me, when I think about the work, uh, a ministry that we've been called to together, uh, when I think about the opportunity that we have to raise our kids in community, I, I can't imagine doing the work without her. And it's not all bells and, you know, bells and bliss in our house. But I can't imagine doing that without Christy. Friends, God provides a suitable helper for Adam to do the work that he's called to do. But not just that. Keep reading. 
verses 21 to 25. It says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, we're going to unpack several things uh, here from these verses. But, but I want to start with this striking picture in verses 24 and 25. See, see, Moses is describing the marriage relationship in ideal terms, okay? And, and he's, he's describing it relationally. Adam and Eve were designed to be in relationship with each other. They, they were to hold fast to one another. They were one flesh. They were naked and not ashamed. And, and church, God didn't just bring Eve onto the scene to produce offspring and to get more done, although she clearly was an important part of that process. But church, God brought Eve onto the scene for relationship, for, for relationship. And see, you, you'll remember from our first sermon in this series, God has eternally existed in Trinitarian relationship within himself. God has always been a father, son, and spirit, one in substance, one in essence, and yet distinct in personality and role. And, and because of this, when we read a, a passage like 1 John 4, 8 that says God is love, we, we realize something very important. This is very profound. Church, God didn't become love. There wasn't a point at in time in which God said, you know what, I think I love. No, no, God didn't become love. He's always been love. He is love. See, God being love is a part of his eternal nature. The, the Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the, the, the Father, and so too the Spirit. And this is in part why our Trinitarian doctrine uh, sets us apart from all other major world religions and is non-negotiable. Friends, you look at all the other major world religions, and when you drill down, they might claim that they, they, they hold Jesus in high regard, but not in the same way that we do, church. They're not Trinitarian. But here, God has existed within himself, always expressing love within that Trinitarian relationship. And so, church, when God creates Eve, he creates her equally in his image as a relational being, as a, as a loving being. And see, to be created in God's image is to be created for relationship. <laughs> when God creates Eve to be Adam's wife, they, they display God's own Trinitarian nature, equal in, in substance and essence, and yet distinct in personality and role. And with that, there, there are several key non-negotiables that we can observe here about their relationship. And, and the first is this. The first is that Adam and Eve are complementary to one another. They're, they're complementary to one another. Their marriage is complementary. Look at 21 and 22. It says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Church, when, when God created Eve, rather than reaching for more dust, he puts Adam to sleep, and instead he reaches for Adam's side. And I love how Matthew Henry describes this. He says, Eve was not made out of his head to top him, 
not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him and under his arm and to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. And church, at his side, her her ministry would complement his. Now, the New Testament gives us clarity on roles within, our, within marriage, and, and that's beyond our scope for this morning. But, but church, Genesis clearly states, the woman was not the man. And yet, she was of the same substance. She was equal in importance. She was equally created in God's image. Thus, as Kasuda says, her soul was bound up with his. Church, God's complementary design for marriage is one of the significant reasons why why same-sex marriage is is such an affront to God's creation order. We aren't made to mirror one another. We're made to complement each other. And this is why Paul references creation order in places like 1 Corinthians 11.8 and 1 Timothy 2.13 as he defends uh, the complementary roles of men and women in marriage and in the church. Both have equal value but they have complementary roles that reflect creation order. This mattered to Paul, and it ought to matter to us, right? Now, note verse 23 here. Note verse 23. The first time man speaks is after the Lord brings him a woman. (laughs) And he doesn't just speak. He writes a poem. He waxes eloquent here. Uh, and it makes sense, right? I mean, here's Eve standing before Adam in all her glory. And Adam is thrilled. And he says, wow, this is at last bone of my bones and, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam says, oh, at last. None of these animals come close to this. Here's Eve. Here's bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Now, when Adam says this, he's enthralled with Eve. And I think there's, there's an elevated emotion here as, as connected to the poetry. But, but he immediately uh, begins to use covenantal language. He uses covenant language here. In the Bible, whenever the terms bone and flesh are used together, they represent covenant. They represent a relational commitment to one another. And so in Genesis 29, 14, Laban says to his nephew, Jacob, recognizing the covenant of their blood relationship, he says, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And church, contrary to those who claim marriage to be governed by, by nothing more than feeling, Adam immediately recognizes what God is doing here. God has brought him a woman who was designed to be in partnership with him for a lifelong covenant till death do us part. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Now there's another fascinating thing to observe in this text, and I think this is brilliant. See, in in the Hebrew, the reference to man here changes. And I want to show you this. In verse 23, at the beginning, Moses uses the Hebrew term Adam to describe man. Okay, And so he says, it's, it says, then the man, Adam, said. And Adam, Adam, it's the same word he's been using all along to describe all of humanity. But now, in verse 23, when he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man, he changes terms. He's no longer referring to man as Adam. Now he refers to man as the Hebrew uh, ish. Now there's something to be said about a man being referred to as ish, right? (laughs) But, But friends, no, man is ish and woman now is isha, isha. 
Different terms, no longer Adam, but Ish and Isha. And church, it's fascinating. Sometimes people have taken exception to this idea uh, that, that the name woman requires the inclusion of the name man. But, but actually, it works reciprocally. Because biblically, both words first get used at the same time. Ish and Isha, that the man and the woman were of the same substance, not identical, but equal. They were to complement each other. Therefore, they, they share components of the same name. Now, look at verse 24. Look at verse 24. It says, therefore, in light of all of this, here's what we're to do. Okay? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, as Moses reflects on how God created the man and the woman, he draws some conclusions about marriage. And the first is this. He says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. A man must leave the authority and the provision of his parents' household and no longer remain dependent on them, no longer subservient to them. And in that, he must hold fast to his wife. Church, God's ideal in marriage is that the marriage relationship, unique to all others, is exclusive. It's exclusive. There, there's no other human relationship like it, not, not even that apparent to child. And so when a man covenants with a woman in marriage, they, they leave behind their, their former allegiance to their parents, and they enter into a new and exclusive priority. Now, it's not that the relationship with the parents doesn't continue. Uh, I, having children who are quickly becoming adults, that matters to me. I, I hope to have a relationship with my kids for a long time. And, and some of you tell me that's possible. Praise God, all right? But, but it's, not, it's not that relationships with parents don't continue. It's that, it, and it's not that children don't become important. But in contrast to cultures that would abdicate marriage for the sake of children, Moses clarifies here, look, this marriage exists in priority exclusively above all others. And in that, notice what he says. Again, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. Church, to be one flesh is to be unified. It's to be unified, not just sexually, although that's a part of it, but also spiritually and emotionally and missionally. <laughs> and friends, that, that's why for those of you who, who might consider getting married, okay, for, for those of you who are, are wrestling with, okay, wh where should I go with this? Uh, what does God have for me in a relationship with, with another person? A am I going to get married to this person? It's so important to consider what the Bible teaches about marriage prior to entering into one of these significant relationships. See, you can't be unified fully as God intends with someone who doesn't share your same spiritual convictions. You can't be unified with somebody who doesn't share your same calling, or at least it's very difficult. Now, again, I stress, I'm, I'm talking about people uh, who ha are not yet married, all right? If you're already married and you don't share the same convictions, that's another conversation. And, and if you struggle with that, come talk to me about it. It's possible. Paul teaches about that in, in, uh, in, in the book of Corinthians. But church, he also says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, don't be yoked with unbelievers. You know, when Christy and I were considering marriage, we, we were young. I, I was really young. I won't say how young, all right? We were young. All right, and, and we were naive. <laughs> I was naive especially. I thought I, I knew what it was to be in a relationship. I thought I knew you know, how to communicate and all of these things. And turns out I didn't. I had a lot to learn. 
But one thing that was true about us in our, uh, in our relationship early on is that we shared common conviction about God, who God is, about what God uh, says in his word, and about how God was calling us. And so some of the training that we received in that time was this, master, mission, then mate, all right? And I just want to throw this out there to you. If you're considering getting married or if you have other people coming to you asking, hey, should I do this? Master, mission, mate, right? And friends, that, that carried us. See, we did have a ton to learn about communication and expectation and all kinds of other things, but, but I'm so grateful that we've always shared the same master and we've always had a common sense of mission, not exactly in every nuance, but we've had a common sense of purpose that God was calling us to something. And in that, it's, it's helped us to remain unified as mates. That's been our foundation. It's been firm. And church, young people or old alike, if you're considering marriage, remember, <laughs> master, mission, mate. I'm not saying it solves every problem, okay? But I am saying that to be unified in these areas is going to give you the best opportunity for, for ongoing intimacy and unity in your marriage. Now, finally in verse 25, Moses reflects this. He says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Church, in Eden, prior to sin, there was no shame. Adam and Eve were shameless. And so Alan Ross says they were at ease with one another. They were without fear of exploitation for evil. Their nakedness was literal, but it also signified something far more. And see, church, the, the sexual union of Adam and Eve reflected the safety and the beauty and the intimacy of the garden where there was no fear, where there was no shame, where there was no exploitation. And this is the way God created it. This is the way he designed it. This is the way it was meant to be. And that's why, friends, when someone acts sexually outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman, whether before marriage or outside of marriage, it violates creation design, God's creation purpose at the highest order. And church, it's fascinating. When we follow God's design for relationship, complementary, Covenantal, exclusive, unified, shameless. We also fulfill God's mandate for creation. Isn't that interesting? For fruitfulness. God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Church work and relationship and fruitfulness go hand in hand in God's creation design. And when we try to operate outside of that design, we violate God's standard and we leave ourselves short. In essence, we, we throw ourselves back out of the garden. We live outside of God's garden provision. So then what do we do? How do we respond? Well, look at verse 22 again. It says, In the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Just as God brought the animals to Adam, now he brings the woman to him as well. And, and what's Adam's responsibility? When God gives you something, what, what's your responsibility? Well, it's to accept what he gives, right? To accept God's provision within God's boundaries. God provided Adam, Eve, and his job was to accept her. We'll talk more about what that means here in a little bit. But, but friends, I, I wish I had more time this morning, but we have to ask, what about singleness? What about singles? Is not singleness also a potential calling according to God's design? And the answer is, yeah, it is. 
And I'll let you do the reading, and if you have questions, let me know. But in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7, both Jesus and Paul reference singleness as a gift from God. As, as, and as such, some, some are, in fact, called to singleness. Some are called to celibacy, to, to be exclusively devoted to Christ. One of my favorite professors in seminary had a call to celibacy. Nonetheless, singles can still accept God's design for marriage in several ways. And here's how I suggest they can. They can honor the marriage bed by, by abstaining from it. The, the marriage bed is reserved for relationship between husband and wife. Another way, they, they can accept God's provision and creation design for community. It's still not good for man to be alone, nor is it good for woman to be alone either, even in the call to singleness. And so they, they can accept God's provision of community by participating in it platonically. And I would argue the church is, is the best place to do that. Especially if the church is functioning as it's capable of. <laughs> and then third, they, they can express covenant community in their loyalty directly to Christ and his bride, the church. And so if you're here this morning and, and you sense a call to singleness, you're not less than. You're not missing out. In fact, both Jesus and Paul affirm it as a hard calling but also is a very, very high calling. It's a high calling, singleness. That said, uh, most of us end up experiencing a call to marriage. And in that, we, we must accept God's provision for it in at least four ways. Okay? First, as Adam received Eve without condition, so we must receive our spouse. We must receive our spouse. Through, through many years of pastoral counseling, I've often had people come to me and say, you know what, Andy, I'm not sure that I should have gotten married to, to my wife or to my husband. I was questioning it then, and I'm wrestling with it now. I think I made the wrong decision. And, and so I really think we ought to go separate ways, and, and, and God will bless that, and we can just flourish. I've heard that many times. And, and friends, my answer is always the same. I, I think you're asking the wrong question. You're raising the wrong question. Because if you're married, that person is God's provision for you. You're in a covenant relationship. And so apart from a couple of exceptions in Scripture, and, and we don't have time to talk about all of those, but they're there. There's a couple of exceptions. But apart from those, the question is not whether you should remain in your marriage, but whether you will receive the person that God has provided for you. Friends, Adam was asleep when Eve came around. He didn't get to pick and choose. He, he woke up, and there she was. And his job was to accept Eve. And I get it. Eve was perfect, right? She was pre-fall at that point. But that call to receive Eve didn't change after the fall. She was still in covenant. They were still in covenant relationship together. And so I'm here to tell you that, and, and maybe some of you don't know this, your spouse isn't perfect, right? Is anybody aware of that, right? We're not. <laughs> but if you're married, he or she is God's provision for you. The question is, will you receive him or her? Will you accept? Okay. Now, second, in our marriages, we need to be willing to leave our families of origin for the sake of our spouse. Not, not to sever all relationship, praise God, but instead to, to change our dependence and our allegiance. For Christy and me, that means that we continue to love our parents. We, we have great relationships with, with uh, Christy's folks and my folks, and I'm so grateful for that. We go to them for encouragement, for advice. 
But, we've, but what we've been committed to not doing is to go to them in a, in a place of dependence and in a place of defiance against the other. And that's protected us from a lot of heartache over the years. I'm grateful for that. Third, we, we must cleave to our spouse. We must cleave. The text says, hold fast to our, our spouse. And that means that we make our spouse our highest priority. And, and not our only priority, but certainly only our only sexual priority. But, but beyond that, our highest priority in all things. Guys, even above golf <laughs> and hunting and fishing. Ladies, even above coffee with your friends and whatever else ladies do. I don't know what ladies do. Church, we spend time with our spouse. We listen. We get counseling when we need it. We share our finances, our needs, our parenting. We share our, our, our mission. doesn't mean we have to do everything all the time together. But it means that our spouse is our highest priority. We cleave to our spouse. And then finally, we cherish them. We cherish our spouse. The text says one flesh. It says naked and unashamed. And, and that doesn't happen flippantly, does it? If we aren't careful with our spouse, if we don't guard our word and our tone and our actions, if we operate sexually outside of our marriage through, through the use of pornography or adultery or, or anything else, we violate God's covenant design. And in that, we do the opposite of cherishing our spouse. But church, as we receive and leave and cleave and cherish the one that God has brought to us, we can participate in a reflection of the Garden of Eden once again. <laughs> we can participate in God's creation covenant design. Not perfectly. Not yet, right? Totally. But, but rever reverentially and beautifully and life-givingly. <laughs> Church, the, the world is redefining marriage as we know it. They're trying to anyway. But we have God's definition. We have God's design. And the question for us today is, will we participate? Will we participate in God's design? Now, I'm going to pray in just a moment. But before I do, I want to put one more plug in for what's happening this afternoon over at Northridge Church. Okay, Christopher Yuan is a former professor at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And he's one of the foremost uh, uh, experts on how, as Christians, to respond to some of these changes that we've been talking about. He's got a book called Holy Sexuality. I've heard Christopher in person before, and I find his message highly compelling. Christy and I are going to be over there at 3 o'clock today, 3 and 4 o'clock. There are workshops. And if you've never heard Christopher, uh, I encourage you to go and, and listen. And I think you can just show up uh, our website. You can sign up uh, and that'd be good uh, to just let him know you're coming. But I encourage you uh, to, to go and, and hear Christopher this afternoon. Friends, these are challenging things to, to talk about, to think about. Amen? I haven't heard amen once this morning, so I don't know if you're with me or not. That's okay. <laughs> there we got it. There we got it. Friends, they're challenging. But as, as God's church and as those who revere God's word, we got to talk about it, okay? And so one of the things we say around here is if I've presented anything that causes you question, or challenge, or even hurt, and I hope not. Let's keep talking, okay? Let's keep talking. And we'll keep going to the Word together. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the privilege of being here together in community. 
And I thank you that one of the expressions of it's not good for man to be alone is the birth of the church. God, you gave us each other to navigate life, to encourage us, to challenge us, to uphold us, to fill in the gaps for us. And so though marriage is, is this prototypical relationship we find in Genesis 2, it's not the only relationship. And so God, I'm so grateful for this church who I consider my church. Not my church as I possess it because I'm a pastor here, but my church because this is my family. And I hope the people here consider this their church as well. God, thank you for your word. And though it challenges conventional thinking often, and though it tweaks us in our own hearts, and, and I'm aware that even some of the stuff I've said conjures up uh, images of the past that we'd rather forget, moments of great despair, great hurt, great shame. God, in the gospel, in Christ, there is no shame. Because Jesus, you have conquered sin and death. And so that, that shamelessness that was a part of the garden is going to be our experience once again, guaranteed by the blood of Jesus and his resurrection and triumph over sin and death. And so in this now period, in the time between now and the not yet, God, help us to reflect that garden experience more and more in our marriages, in our parenting in our friendships, in our neighborhood, in our community. God, help us to image you to the world around us in all things. To you be the glory. In this we, in this we pray. Amen.